Hey everyone, this is Alan Arnold. I'm the producer of the Ansons podcast. If you haven't heard yet Sam and Blaine's message from last week called The Courage to Pause, you'll want to take a listen to that. It's only about six minutes, but in it, you'll hear their desire to take a break, to restore, and just breathe a little bit between now and the end of the year. So what we're going to do here for the Ansons podcast, we're going to keep weekly podcasts going, but we're grouping past podcasts in ways they've never been put together before by topic and category. And the first category that we're going to look at and dive into is soul care. So this podcast originally aired about two years ago, and it was called Simple Practices for Soul Care. It was number 78, and we're going to take a fresh listen to that. And over the next three weeks, this week plus three more, we're going to be in past Anson's podcasts that deal with the topic of soul care. I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed en masse. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. Hey guys, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. Today's episode actually got started several weeks ago when we had a conversation with Dr. Randy James who we've heard from many of you, has become a favorite podcast guest, and that's true for us too. So if you haven't listened to it, go ahead and stop right now. Go back, listen to it. I think it's going to be worth it. One of the things he says, he lays out the foundations of health and what he considers to be the kind of pillars of caring for yourself from a medical perspective, and he names Sabbath. And he gave this really embarrassing example of a Friday night where... You choose to like watch a movie and eat some ice cream as your recovery at the end of the week. And then you feel horrible afterwards. Yeah. And he said, when was the last time you did that? And then got up and said, my soul is filled. Yeah. Right. So never. <laughs> no, you always regret it. The thing that has not been filling my soul recently has been the new season of Meat Eater on Netflix. It's not been filling your soul? Have you been trying? I've been enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. But I am also, I find myself going to it in the evening. And in part because we had a conversation with Dr. Randy James, in part because everyday life is happening, the thing that I've been noticing is my soul not getting filled on a regular basis, which brings us to today's conversation. Yeah, right. I mean, even in that older podcast, we didn't give many examples. I mean, he, he named this thing that's really good. And then we kind of moved on from it and said that we're not very good at it. And clearly we're so bad at it. We had a hard time even coming up with current examples from our lives of ways that we're doing it. Sabbath. Yeah. So this isn't a podcast on Sabbath though. But Sabbath is a part of Sabbath and soul restoration. Right. That foreign skill Truly foreign skill. Kind of a couple of groupings of words that sound intimidating and already invoke failure and necessity. Yeah. It's good that it's not a Sabbath podcast because Sabbath also, until you know you dig into Shabbat, 
sounds boring and like you have to go to church. Truthfully, even when you dig into Shabbat, it sounds maybe even more boring. <laughs> well, it's awesome. <laughs> Recently had a conversation with a great young guy who's coming off of a season working in a church. It's been a part of the development of his calling. He's, he's doing the Anson's thing. And it's been a difficult season that he's coming out of. And we were just talking around, what do you need now? And his awareness of a deep need for what he named as joy. Going like, man, I, I just need some joy and, and fishing and wilderness. And going, oh, wait, hang on. I, I've been thinking about this. Yes, that's true. But I think what you're really naming in this craving for joy slash relief is restoration. Your soul has taken hits and is empty and it does not heal itself. It does not get better on its own. Right. I think one of the ways that we want to start this is just that the idea of soul care and the idea of joy and Sabbath, they end up kind of snowballing, kind of like... It's the give a mouse a cookie, but like the bad version for yourself. And that like you kind of think, wow, I really need some joy. Like this guy is getting out of cleaning toilets or whatever for so long. And you're like, I need to go fishing. Well, all of a sudden fishing becomes like this trip to Montana that you'd always said you would take. And you want to do it with your dad or a friend and you don't have any gear. And then it turns out you don't have any money to get there. And so to actually like do soul care feels like this massive undertaking and it's that domino give a mouse a cookie effect of like if I'm going to take care of myself then it's, it's got to be so elaborate and so intentional and thought it's almost like a sabbatical like I'm just going to disappear from the world for three months which is totally unhelpful and ends up making us just continue to neglect ourselves and the day-to-day and the small moments and there's some small moment reactions I want to get to but we also want to name at the beginning like (laughs) part of this episode is almost like if you need to intentionally take care of yourself and see a counselor do it it should be obvious we've had multiple counselors on this podcast everyone in the office mostly blaine has received counseling at some time and it's a humbling experience I, i when i needed to go get it it was a need because my soul was not well I was like falling apart at the seams, though I thought I was doing okay. And up to that point, I had been such an advocate of like, everybody can benefit from this thing. It's going to be really good. Have someone listen, have someone ask these questions, like unearth some of the deeper motivations. And then when it was my turn, I'm like, dang it. (laughs) But it was really good. It was really needed. And it was like a step towards, I think, taking it more seriously. So in some cases, soul care does look like something bigger like counseling, but it also doesn't need to be this massive expedition. Right. The two things maybe to frame the conversation. Soul care is an everyday, regular need. It's one of the needs in the masculine life. And it is its own thing of soul care is not adventure. Yes, adventure is part of the life of the masculine soul, but adventure on its own does not restore the soul. It does not bring relief to wounded places. It doesn't actually address shame. And so guy time does not necessarily restore the soul. Just to begin going, it's its own 
category. And that's been super key for me in, and in what you're naming about counseling and these practices we'll describe are actually there are real things we need to do in order to care for the life of our soul. And they it doesn't just get rolled in with church and worship and masculine friendship and wilderness. Sure, each of those things can be a context for soul restoration. But that's not the default. The soul does not get better through a trip to the mountains. The soul does not just get better through like a great time smoking a cigar with a buddy. Yeah. To reflect once more back on the Dr. James podcast, he had this really straightforward kind of declaration of if you are not intentionally doing things to reach a certain goal later in life, you are going to be angling towards an assistance helm. So like for your body, if you do not have things that you're regularly implementing, you need to know that what you're doing instead is you're angling towards degeneration and probably much sooner than you might think. The same is true of your soul. Like unless you are doing things intentionally to care for these places in your past and in your present, it's not like those are just going to get better. They're just going to fester and keep informing ways that you make decisions. Maybe there's something that we're going to end up talking about today that you're going to go, that's amazing. And this is actually probably a topic that we're going to end up revisiting because uh, it's something that Padre is also thinking about and writing on a little bit. Um, and so we'll, we'll lasso him in here and have him drop some wisdom bombs on you. Yeah, we'll riff on a few that we are learning about in real time. And the first one that I think of, because I've been learning about recently, comes out of the spiritual disciplines. And what kind of what I love is when you study the life of Jesus, and therefore you study the spiritual disciplines, you'll see that soul care is included. It's, it's this thing that is rolled in and represented in the Christian life. We just need to learn about it and do it. So the Become Good Soil podcast, which if you're in the Ransom Tart world, I hope you know about Become Good Soil is another thing like Ann's sons inside the Ransom Tart orbit. But Morgan and his wife Sherry did a series on that podcast on contemplative prayer that will go much further into it than we're capable of going right now. It was huge because the fascinating thing about contemplative prayer, which is also known as Christian meditation, is this ancient spiritual practice that literally has the ability to heal the brain. And it's one of those things that if in your youth you struggled with attachment that you don't even know about, these deep-seated like human neural soul needs, there are things in the Christian life that can actually provide those to you. Contemplative prayer, how it works, this is this crazy thing. You find a place that is conducive to meditating on the person of Jesus. Don't worry, this is going to start feeling very concrete. So uh, probably distraction-free. Right, so you can't do it while you're driving. There's a lot of places you couldn't do it. Your desk. Don't do it in your car. Don't try to do it while you're on a run. <laughs> Those are These are different boxes. So find the box like 
for me, it's pretty easy when Alish has just gone down for the night. Em and I a few times have begun doing this together of like turn off the overhead lights in the living room. There's finally some quiet in the house and do the discipline that is turning our hearts to experience what is termed the direct realization of God. This isn't thinking about God. This is directing your heart to have a direct encounter with the love of the Father. I like how you began that with, it's pretty easy for you. How often do you guys just sit in your dimly lit living room thinking about the wonderful heart of God? Well, this is why I love Richard Foster, who, because you're going to give me the wrong impression here. He's one of the guys who the wrote about the spiritual disciplines. He has this juxtaposition in the beginning of his book, A Celebration of Discipline, where he goes, the disciplines are very easy. In another way, the disciplines are all extremely hard. <laughs> oh, gosh. And you go, yes, actually, you can start engaging all of these right away in this sort of this paradox where they are totally accessible to you. And yeah, it's totally difficult to... Stop in the middle of your run on a park bench or, you know, in a field that you happen to run through that's conducive to rest for you and, you know, pull up a chair or a rock. You don't have to shut your eyes, but if you're constantly being distracted by everything in front of you, it can be a good idea to start like turning your attention to the persons of the Trinity and going like a father. You are my father. Like. Meet me, surround me with your love. There are on the Become Good Soil podcast some very helpful versions where Sherry actually kind of leads you through one. And if you've never done it before, like me, that's incredibly helpful to have somebody who's read the books on contemplative prayer sort of direct you through a session of contemplative prayer. We're talking 10, 15 minutes. Uh, Sherry will even pull over in her car in like a quiet parking lot. One funny story where she was just by a dumpster, but it was the quiet spot where she could pull her car and like turns her heart, which she has practiced, into the discipline of contemplative prayer. And there are studies, people that engage this practice of it actually changing your neurology, like, you know, neurons of fear and abandonment actually become transformed as the neural pathways of being loved, chosen, uh, fought for, found form so that even like deep insecurity around abandonment can be addressed by God, by engaging God. And it's so funny because I talked about mediator. Mediator is literally the thing that competes with contemplative prayer for me because they occupy the same slot in the evening. You're like, I could sit here in silence and do this Christian form of meditation or... I could watch about a guy hunting and harvesting. I know. And they take the same amount of time. And there is provision for both. They're both good things, but they're not the same thing. And I'll get to the end of the day and go, listen. And it's kind because God will tell me. I'll like ask, is this immediate or night? Or do I actually need to shut the computer and turn my heart to experience your love for a while? And he'll let you know. So often in this podcast, it feels like we try to break down the engine into the little cogs and the little pieces. For the instance, the contemplative prayer thing could be broken down into so many sub-pieces that are important. Like, do you have the ability to still your world and to like 
shut it all down for a minute and step away? Do you have the ability to practice the ability of hearing God, of hearing his voice, of like actually thinking about him and like every little aspect of that, back to that quote, is like very easy and super difficult and to combine it all I think is just one of those moments of like you gotta you gotta be good at each little part of that in order for it to work otherwise distraction gets in and your total disbelief and anger towards God gets in and I mean any number of things so here are the two uh, most significant things that I've done to develop those capacities that in turn allow me to engage contemplative prayer. One is, guys, from now on, never take out your phone when you're taking a dump. That's just an off-limit zone. When you're going to the bathroom, don't do anything. That's like a small, quiet place, and I know you all do it, because I also do it. Plus, if you kind of lose track of like phone wiping rhythms, you get those things all over, and it's going to put that up by your face. It's just, it's just not very sanitary. That's gross, man. But seriously, like, listen, if you don't have a small, quiet space with no media, with no noise, well, you're going to the frickin' bathroom, that's the easy, that's the lowest hanging fruit. From now on, when you go to the bathroom, all you do is stare at the wall. The other one is, when you drive your car, it doesn't have to be both ways, you know, to and from work. On the way into work, you know, Emma and I go through the daily prayer because that's the time we have to do it. And we talk about the day or whatever. If it's just me in the car, it's prayer. And then that's when I'll listen to my podcasts. But also, I just started going, you know what? At least the drive home. Because so much has to happen in my heart between leaving work and engaging my family. I just go and drive home. There's no podcast. There's no music. If the weather's nice and the speed limit's slow, the windows are down, and this is just one space where I can actually build up my tolerance for quiet and for solitude. It's good. So another category for soul care that we've been talking about is memory and what you do with kind of unbidden memories that jump up. I'm going to just take what feels like not that hard of a guess and say that the memories that jump up unbidden throughout the day are probably not awesome ones. Um, they certainly aren't for me. They tend to be like the ones of shame or embarrassment or like a lost friendship or the stupid thing I said 10 years ago or this morning. It doesn't really matter, but typically it's this experience of like fresh angst, embarrassment, you name it. Something in the realm of memory and trauma that we've been learning about. There was a study done on trauma that I was learning about while participating in the some of the learning at the Allender Center. And obviously when you're doing a study on trauma, you want to kind of like set an ethical bar. You can't really inflict something too damaging to people. Set everybody's house on fire. Yeah, right. Tell all of them that their beloved pet has just died. Like that's just, it's, you cross a line. So what's the highest form of trauma that's the most ethical that people could test? It ended up being public speaking. So they like followed this class that was doing a semester long public speaking course and they did all these tests on them these evaluations. And like, it is a legitimate form of trauma for most people. Um, I remember there was an old Seinfeld stand up where he said that like the first 
fear for most people is public speaking. The second is death. And people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. So it's a, it's a sort of funny and yet low and yet real form of trauma that people experience doing this public speaking. Well, then what they did was one year later, they had the same people come in and write. It was either a page or a paragraph. So not particularly long and not the same form. Um, they weren't get, like giving a talk about it. They just had to sit and write out what that experience was like last year for them. And then they did all these tests again. And what they found was that the people were experiencing something somewhere between 80 and 90% of the same level of anxiety and fear and trauma that they had during the actual event. And so they're like, okay, wait, this is a public speaking. This is a year later. This is a different form. They're just writing. They're not actually doing the same thing again. And it's very brief. And yet they're experiencing almost the exact same event, like kind of negligible difference here at that point. And they're able to like extrapolate how much more so than other events, other higher forms of trauma or shame or stress that we might experience much more similar things too. It's like a friend betrays you again, or you experience the same smell or you literally the same thing happens to you again. Like you are reliving all of those past events in that moment genuinely. Um, and so that actually gives a lot more dignity and a lot more caution to those moments that come throughout the day. And you're just driving along and like, I can, I can almost just go through the file and pull one out and be like, okay, so I'm sitting on the lawn, it's college, and I'm having a conversation with a guy that was a friend, and I said something particularly unkind to him. And it was a series of things that caused that friendship to end. And yet, at the end of it, I felt betrayed. And in many ways, I was. That memory comes up, and I feel shame for like the things that I said to him. I'm like mad at him for betraying me. I'm like, my, I need a name that my body is experiencing all those things again. My soul is experiencing all those things again. And uh, it was a little while ago that uh, I heard about Luke. Our brother had this practice where a memory would come up to him. He would sort of pull out air revolvers with both of his hands and shoot it out of the sky. Um, and I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like, I'm gonna start doing that. And I would just kind of you know, shoot that bad memory away except that then i had to kind of acknowledge like what is the target of that what am i going to be participating in when that memory comes back am i shooting that past version of myself am i participating in the uh, the story of that person that version of me is worthy of shame is worthy of the hatred or the reproach or the whatever i'm feeling towards that younger older past me self or am I shooting like the shame am I shooting the enemy's use of that memory to make me feel those same things again like can I actually stand in the way of no that doesn't get to continue that doesn't get to have an effect on my day and actually I forgive that younger me like I I know what was going on and I do not refuse him like he is part of me and like i i'm gonna like stop hating that memory and that that person i would like to say that i pull out my air revolvers and i kind of you know shoot that memory out of the sky and what i'm doing is just kind of forgetting it but truthfully like 
more often than not, I am just participating in. That was really stupid. I can't believe you did that. Like, I'm gonna just, I'm not going to think about it anymore, but man, I can't believe that happened. So, ditto me. Here's what happened. I just realized that as I'd be driving my car and the unbidden thing would come up, the relationship that ended, the hard event, the painful beats of history, the thing that would come out of me would be just this F you. And sometimes, like, audibly, and I always look around and be like, did anyone hear me? Usually they don't, so I think I must have a pretty quiet register for that. But this thing started happening. We'd be driving, and the next thing would actually be God going, F who? And it would force this moment of, oh, crap. Like, who exactly are you pushing away, like, taking a shot at cursing and being like, okay, first thing I need to do is, like, I renounce the curse of that. And then... You know, there's been this other thing. By the way, this is the moment where something like counseling comes back into the story because counseling is the thing that, full disclosure, haven't done it yet. But the reason I haven't done it yet is because it feels like there are very ill-defined paths of when it's the right time to engage counseling. And I think I'm understanding, or I have a growing understanding as people even younger than me make the wise choice to get a counselor's eyes on their life is that counseling is one of the things that nothing else replaces. It's not like anything else. You can't get counseling by having a friend who's capable of having a good conversation. Like, no, that's a friend having a good conversation. That's not a proven external person who is at a helpful distance offering insights and some direction into your life and story. But like the thing that finally happened was this year, like I lost a lifetime friend, long-term friend suddenly departs this earth only like six weeks ago. And it was something that the driving along and the memory comes up, like nothing I can do can keep it at a distance. And so it's been the instead like, all right, Jesus, what do I do? And sort of, his instruction in this season has been find the space necessary if it's stopping the car or if it's just pausing for a moment go ahead and let the memory come and invite me into it it's extremely simple and it's going you know the memory all of a sudden I'm 17 years old on some backpacking trip and I'm there and I just go okay like rather than going like oof and like letting it pass quickly letting it sink back into oblivion going like okay, wait, hang on, like, remember it? Don't immediately curse it or dismiss it or some shoot from the hip reaction and go, like, Jesus, meet me here. Come into this. And often it's as simple as that. It's shifting the response from, like, the F you into, like, the, whoa, okay, what is in need of care here? And, Jesus, will you, will you come into this, come into whatever it is, because I love the worship song, which is when you walk into the room. This is God incarnate. When he shows up, things really do start to change. His presence really does begin to produce an effect. Yeah, that's really good. The flip side is also something that we've been talking about. Um, because though the, the memories that kind of come unbidden tend to be ones of trauma, shame, fear, reproach, the FU type memories. We've been really just kind of trying to understand the role of memory in positive things. And something I was just mentioning to you this morning was I find 
that my ability to sit with a positive memory, a good memory is like almost non-existent. So those shame memories, like I can go back into that moment. I can sit, I can pitch a tent and like live there all day. Good memories. Like we're in high school. It's the yearly guys trip out to Moab. We're driving down the Cane Creek Canyon road. We've got somebody without their driver's license behind the wheel. The rest of us are hanging on the running boards of the suburban blasting Jimmy Cliff in the canyons and it smells like Russian olive trees and summer is just right around the corner. It's hot. And like, that's a beautiful memory. And I love that time and those spaces. And like, I can stay with that moment for about three seconds. Like it's almost hot coals for my mind. And like, why can I pitch the tent and the crappy memory, but I can't stay in this good one. Something that dad has been saying is he's been really trying to practice going back into good memories and lingering them is like, they're part of the meal. They're part of what was meant for us. And we have this capacity. And so to practice, you know, like the vacation this year or 10 years ago, the, the beautiful moment with my daughter that you name it, um, intentionally sit in them and let them do their good work for your soul and your heart and be okay that actually what's some of the recoiling is the loss that that moment came and went so quickly that that's not maybe not going to happen again maybe it it has some grief because of the people involved but that doesn't make it not a good memory and not something that was meant for our goodness it's, it was meant to be tove it is meant to like inspire that dreaming and that connection and those like whatever it was, that's something that we need to learn to use. Like it's the most atrophied muscle for my memory of all of them. Yeah. It's just a great question. What do you linger on and what do you meditate on? And most of us, the news is trauma and the memories that come up are trauma and shame and the day is crisis. And so the things that we meditate on are actually soul-destroying. And I've been doing the same thing, going, wow, I think of a hunting trip that was several years ago and this just memorable evening, and I'll return to the hillside and, you know, the feeling of the late summer dirt and the smell of the aspen trees that you could just anticipate their turning and go into the senses of that memory to just go and sit there, think of the pine trees, think of the way the valley below looked when I was pretty confident no deer were going to come through. But it was this beautiful evening and to return there and go, wow, there's a shift when the things I start actually setting my heart on regularly are the gifts that God has, is kind of sowing into the story. And the meal is a great example because one of the things that people rave about, about any positive consumptive experience is the lingering feeling with wine or coffee. It's the aftertaste or the back of the palate, even great charcuterie, which I love to make. Once you've taken the bite, it's what's the sensation of that, the real physical thing that is the memory of the thing in your palate. And there is a soul equivalent to going back to great times in the wilderness, great cigars with friends, 
like great dates with your wife and like letting the gift multiply by lingering there. It's funny, so much of this hinges upon the sort of accumulation of damage and on this other massive topic, which is shame, which people who deal with soul care sort of universally acknowledge that shame is the titanic weapon employed against human beings to do lingering damage. In the same way we're talking about the lingering positive of these Sabbath memories, shame is the lingering destroyer. Right. Well, think about how shame affects your body when it comes to an example of a desire to be more fit. You want to go for runs, but you feel shame that you haven't been running. And so you would feel shame to put on the shoes and go or you punish your body and when you do finally go and so it feels bad and so you feel like you want to get comfort and so you go back to the food and then you feel shame for the food and then you give up the running and it just ends up being like this harbor that has you hedged in and is defining movements out and pulls you back. So how much more so for the soul and for your memories. Right. And when you have that What I love is you kind of begin to see the battle great artists and fathers in the faith and folks of that type have fought with shame. And Wendell Berry has this great poem that is simply, do not be ashamed. And it reads like this. You will be walking some night in the comfortable dark of your yard And suddenly a great light will shine about you. And behind you will be a wall you never saw before. It will be clear to you suddenly that you are about to escape and that you are guilty. You misread the complex instructions. You're not a member. You lost your card or never had one. And you will know that they have been there all along. Their eyes on your letters and books their hands in your pockets, their ears wired to your bed. Though you have done nothing shameful, they will want you to be ashamed. They will want you to kneel and weep and say you should have been like them. And once you say you are ashamed, reading the page they hold out to you, then such light as you have made in your history will leave you. They will no longer need to pursue you. You will pursue them begging forgiveness, and they will not forgive you. There is no power against them. It is only candor that is aloof from them, only an inward clarity, unashamed that they cannot reach. Be ready. When their light has picked you out and their questions are asked, say to them, I am not ashamed. A sure horizon will come around you. The heron will rise in his evening flight from the hilltop. That's so good. It's interesting that as we do a podcast on soul care and some ways that that's been percolating for us, we end up talking about silence and memory and shame and where are you thinking these days? Where are you turning in your mind and your heart and your soul to these days? Where are you setting your face against And they are just a couple of things. We've sort of hit where we're probably going to land today. And the world of soul care is vast. 
and there are many tools and yet uh, I think often just a few simple things that we can begin doing this afternoon are more helpful to me than a seminar. Yeah, it's dad when he's often asked to give instruction about next steps on a life with God. The next step he'll say is do something. We've thrown out a couple pathways into soul restoration. And the key is do something. Your soul will not just get better. So as you said, the thing this afternoon that you were going to engage, pick something to start this regular rhythm of soul care because your heart is absolutely languishing without it.